The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Before we completely um, transition to the Dharma talk, the end of the meditation time here, I'd like to invite you to take a moment from that meditative space and offer metta, kindness, goodwill to the other people in this Zoom room, to other Sangha members who might not be present right now, to any other practitioners in your life who support your practice. Knowing as you're offering these good wishes that you're also receiving them from the others present here or listening later. May all beings be happy and free. So friends, today I'd like to continue a little bit. The theme started last week, which was practicing at the six sense doors, sense gates with the six senses. And um, as promised last week, I'm going to do a sort of subset of what we talked about, which is the Buddha had a specific set of instructions for practicing with emotions through awareness of the six sense gates. And this is not the only set of instructions on practicing with emotions in the Pali Canon, and it's... um, but it is, it's kind of a unique one. And it's very much looking at emotion through the lens of what is onward leading in the path and what is not. So I'm going to weave in bits of other practice wisdom as we talk about this, because um, it seems important to name skillful means in addition to those that he names in this talk. But most of the focus is going to be on that, on this onward leading practice. But first, just to um, ground us in the six senses, I'd like to offer another little introductory visualization. Feel free to do this with eyes open or eyes closed. If visualization is not your thing, just follow along and humor me for a few minutes. It won't be long. So, your mind's eye imagining that you're in a very beautiful place, perhaps on a bluff overlooking the ocean at sunset. The sky is vast, the ocean is vast. Noticing what is seen through your eyes, the colors. The horizon, there is a visible horizon. The form of the weather, is it clear or cloudy? Dramatic 
or subtle, this sunset. And then tuning in to what might be heard, crashing or lapping of the waves, maybe seabirds. Breathe at your ears and other sounds. Noticing too any smells, perhaps herbaceous plants, or the smell of the ocean itself. Imagining what might be contacting your skin. Balmy tropical air or cool breeze. Moisture or crispness. Perhaps you can even taste the tang of the salt in the air from the ocean. And lastly, noting, noticing the awareness, the knowing itself of all of this. Checking in what mood or emotions may be present. Feeling into your heart, your mind. And then as we transition from this meditation, noticing the heart and mind's relationship to this little imaginative sketch. Noticing that it's all arising in the heart and the mind. And then, if you choose to open your eyes for the rest of the talk, and even if you don't, notice what is seen, heard, sensed, smelled or tasted and known in this moment. So, the six senses. One way the Buddha describes Vipassana practice. They are... um, in the four foundations of mindfulness, or the fourth foundation, that all-inclusive foundation, frame of reference known as dhammas. And um, as we talked about last week, they kind of straddle in some ways the other foundations as well. They are physical, most certainly, and there's feeling tone, 
associated with them. Today, the Buddha describes in one discourse in the Majjhima Nikaya, noticing and practicing with emotion through each of these senses. And I'm going to give the tiniest review of the Buddhist conception of how practice through experience through the first, through the six senses works, because it might be a little different than how we conceive of it in daily life. And then go with the flow of this discourse. So, in Buddhist thinking, there are six senses, six sense bases. Eyes and seeing, ears and hearing, nose and smelling, taste, tongue, sensing of the body. That's the first five. And then the sixth is the mind door. And the objects were so-called external sense bases are whatever comes up at each of these senses. As I was just reciting, eyes and seeing. For mind, it's mind or heart-mind and emotions and thoughts. And for that matter, all other mental activity, it's a huge category. And while this discourse known as the exposition on or analysis of the six senses and sense spaces is quite technical. I'm not going to get so much into detail, but just to note that that's the basic process. And there are always a couple of other things going on. One is that there is contact between whatever is seen, heard, etc. and whatever organ is receiving it. And the other is that there's always consciousness, vijnana, Cognizing happening. The jamati. So, the instruction is to simply know when these arisings contact these various inputs. And as I talked about last week, I introduced a couple of practices. One is just resting and noticing whatever flows in, into awareness, through whatever sense it flows in. You can also rotate through them consciously as a practice. I do this when walking or hiking quite frequently. Just a tiny bit of structure to um, support general awareness. And then the third practice, the one the Buddha introduces in this discourse, is to notice either during or after an arising, the emotion involved. And the emotions are, I'm going to give a few different translations for each, happiness, joy, good stuff, right? The second general category of emotion is unhappiness, distress, or grief. And then third is equanimity. So the instruction is to explore when an emotion arises or when a contact happens, you can do it either way, at, say, seeing. Seeing a beautiful flower. Might make, there might be joy or a touch of satisfaction or happiness. And just exploring that, 
or hearing a siren. There might be compassion or grief that arises, exploring that. Often, many of us, especially in daily life, notice the emotion, maybe even before or at the same time as we notice whatever we're perceiving, shall we say, cognizing. That works too, can work backwards. In that case, the analysis, the touching back into the way this came into our hearts and minds often can help provide a little bit of distance from it. Or at least a little understanding of it, right? So, I wonder if any of you might have examples of something like this. Just like one or two simple ones. Anybody have one? can put it in the chat if you're shy to talk. Twee, you're muted. I see your lips moving. I was trying to write the chat, but I think um, why, I were, why I was listening to your meditation, I had that strong feeling and when you said, ask the question, what is this present moment? The answer came up fast, strong fast. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of energy generating from that. So, And that sounds like it might fall into the valence of, of happiness or joy, that faith. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I was wondering, I said, what is this energy? It was, it's, it's some agitation. But then I, I, I keep staying with it, and I said, "Oh, this is joy." Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. So, um, yes. Yeah, so what Twee is pointing out as well is that there's this whole range of emotions, right? And these buckets are kind of simple, and we humans often can get to one of them. And sometimes there's a mix, multiple emotions coming up in quick succession or mixing. Um, But what she is also pointing out is um, that contact was through the heart-mind door. That is, for most of us, the most powerful door for emotion. So I work in a hospital, and it's just to say not to underestimate the importance of the physical senses, too, in this process. So the Buddha taught that these three basic kind of emotions, buckets of emotions, the happiness, joy, the unhappiness, distress, grief, or the equanimity, fall into two basic categories. So he made six total, kind of a grid of six total kinds of emotion. And they are so-called household, joy or happiness, distress or grief, and equanimity. And then so-called renunciation, happiness, grief, or equanimity. So what the heck does he mean by household? I got curious about this when reading, you know, the discourse. And basically, household means hooked. Simply, it means identified with, lured in by, obsessing over, papanchizing, etc. 
right? And renunciation implies a different relationship where the mindfulness is strong and there's a different relationship. And I'll talk more about that relationship in a little bit. So how to work with them. As I mentioned earlier, in particular, these are, um, his instructions are sort of how to work with them to progress along the path. And by progress along the path, we're talking in a more kind of intensive meditative situation here, perhaps a retreat or a longer meditation session. So um, keep that in mind as I talk about them. So household joy. There is nothing whatsoever inherently wrong about taking joy in the senses. The Buddha talks about the joy of householders in a number of discourses, and he actually encourages householders, that's all of us, pretty much, I think, um, to to take happiness, to take joy. Household distress and grief, gotta say it's less recommended. So I'm gonna start there. So um, the way he defines distress, sadness, grief in the household sense, the hooked sense, is the non-gain or the not getting or the loss of things that are wished for, desired, wanted, that are either seen, heard, sensed, tasted, thought, smelled, all of it. So that encompasses pretty much everything. And this might sound kind of dry until we unpack what that actually means, right? So many, many kerfuffles in my neighborhood, and I'm sure many others have happened over people resisting the loss of a beautiful view from their home or density in their neighborhood. There's also the um, loss of comfort in the body or capacity in the body. What is sensed there, hearing loss, for example. For me, recently, I had perfect vision my whole life, and now I can be with you guys without glasses because you're within four feet of me, but I better not leave the house without them. (laughs) Bad things will happen. So that's a form of of sensory loss in the eye. It's very simple, right? So there's a number of ways to work with this, and a lot of them are really good. And I'll just note a few that come up elsewhere in the teachings. Um, Not to add to make things worse, right? Not to add that proverbial second arrow or third arrow, or tenth arrow, or twenty-fifth arrow, of bemoaning, self-criticism, blame or self-blame, any of that kind of stuff. And to be kind to the mind and heart that is adding it when it does, and that's pretty much a when for most people, without necessarily buying into the story. Strong mindfulness, patience, 
intentionally cultivating compassion, turning towards with love and awareness. All of those things work beautifully. They don't work right away, generally. Giving complete permission for grief. My day job is a hospital chaplain. And giving complete permission for grief, turning towards it with love, with awareness. As far as I can tell in my own heart and other hearts, that's the fastest, most efficacious way to let it process and move through. So all of these things are important and may, in fact, help bolster you along the path. The Buddha here talks about a different move, and this is a move that is helpful for more experienced meditators, generally. Though it can be accessed pretty early in practice for people who are really dedicated to practicing regularly. And that is... By relying on this, abandon that. And that means by relying on renunciation grief, abandon this more traditional grief about what's arising in the heart, the mind, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. So what is renunciation grief? It is more of a general perception. So the mind moving to a general perception of anicca, impermanence, and constancy, and noticing that everything is changing and breaking up all of the time. So it's a very powerful and fundamental move to shift from obsessing about the particulars of that thing, or that job, or that person, or this capacity, and instead shifting to the recognition that things are constantly shifting, can't be hung on to at all. And this is not so much a conceptual shift, although the idea can help, as it is dedicating oneself to practice and noticing the little shifts that are happening, and noticing the response to them and being loving and aware about it. What that generates, that noticing, impermanence, change, fading away, and cessation are the things noticed. That's anicca, viraga, and nirodha, for those of you who are more polywonks. It generates a longing and a grief for liberation, and that's the longing that becomes predominant. And that is an onward-leading longing from the perspective of ultimate liberation. So what many people do, I know I've certainly done, is to, um, in daily life, turn towards something else instead, distract, right? And that can be healthy sometimes, distract with, a, with some joy, something joyful, something pleasurable, something happy. Just to normalize that that can be healthy too. It's a matter of knowing where your own heart and mind are at as to what is more accessible and what's more useful. But that'll also serve as a transition to this household joy that I brought up briefly earlier. So 
as I said, there's nothing wrong with household joy in the sense of the simplicity of taking joy in immediate sensory surroundings, enjoying that beautiful sunset, enjoying that one square of chocolate, whatever it is, right? Savoring it. In fact, that's kind of an antidote to the way Buddha, this, the Buddha describes household joy, even though these are joys of householders, or for that matter, humans. Um, savoring and really coming to the senses can help short-circuit identifying with whatever's happening. Oh, this is mine. I need a better view of this sunset. I'm going to get 10,000 bars of chocolate, whatever it is, right? The difference is in the acquisitiveness. He's basically saying this wanting to acquire through the six senses, is that in itself is suffering. Seeking. You know, I'm sure this has happened to none of you whatsoever, but it certainly happened to me where I take the first bite of a dessert and it is sublime. It is absolutely amazing. And there's this human tendency to sort of rush through or have more. And man, by the 10th bite, am I tasting it at all? Or am I just planning for the 11th bite, right? It's actually less enjoyable. And that happens with all kinds of sense pleasures. When we get hooked on the next thing, the thing that is already arising becomes much less salient, full, interesting. So... Those are ways to kind of work with the joy, happiness, or pleasure of the senses in the moment within the context of sense pleasure itself. And there's a lot more to be said about that, but I want to keep the talk relatively at time. So the focus of the Buddha's teaching, again, is by relying on this, abandon that, by relying on renunciation joy, Abandon this acquisitive kind of orientation to joy. It doesn't mean not experiencing joy or pleasure. It just means not grabbing on. Ajahn Chah describes clinging, suffering as rope burn. Don't get rope burn with reality. This renunciation joy actually takes joy in the clear seeing of this impermanence and constancy of everything, this flow through. And in particular, sees the breaking up of things, the changing of them with wisdom, and then joy just naturally arises. The joy of non-clinging is one way to say it. It's sometimes so clear, even in daily life, if you're hooked into a state, even a, even a one that maybe has got a joyfulness in it, the narrowing of the mind to that can have a little tension in it. And the popping away, the letting go, and letting it flow, and just in being with it in a more relaxed way, 
that. That is a kind of renunciation joy. The letting go, the non-clinging itself. So then we get to household equanimity. And this one, the least is said about, and I'm I'm not, um, I'll just say a little bit, maybe one or two of you can think of an example. So household equanimity is equanimity that is about a certain sense object. So it might be, I don't really care what I have for lunch, or this isn't the best food, but I don't mind, right? Do one or two of you maybe have an example of something, something you're equanimous about? Not as a general state, but equanimous about that thing. You can put it in the chat if you prefer. Just a little example. I have a washing machine that's quite old, but it does still work. But it makes a heck of a noise when it's spinning. But um, I've just learned to kind of uh, live with it because it is still working well enough. Fantastic. Yes. And that is the kind of thing that could be really annoying to someone, right? Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, that. Being okay with not having the latest gizmo or appliance. Being okay with the annoying noise emerging from something. So these forms of household equanimity, they can be helpful, right? I mean, certainly in daily life. Um, It's a whole lot more fun to be equanimous about a traffic jam than it is to be fuming about one, right? Renunciation equanimity transcends, according to the Buddha, goes beyond this kind of daily life household equanimity. Because while household or daily life equanimity is great, I might be equanimous about the noise emitting from my washer or dryer, but not be equanimous at all about the noise my neighbors are making, right? It's specific. Renunciation equanimity is equanimity about all that is arising, seen, heard, smelled, tasted, touched, cognized. It's a very, very powerful onward leading kind of place and can be tasted in meditation retreat or occasionally by grace in a daily life meditation of just, oh, everything's flowing through and it's all fine, right? So now I'm going to kind of transition to the second mode the Buddha talks about, which is once one is in one of these renunciation states of grief, joy, or equanimity, what happens? And just to name that this is kind of the road to insight in this discourse. And it does kind of mirror some of the human moves we can make from grief to joy to equanimity in our lives, daily lives. And here he says, by relying on renunciation joy, that joy of things just flowing through, being impermanent, Abandon renunciation grief, the longing, or the rub about things constantly flowing through and changing. Then by relying on renunciation equanimity, abandon renunciation joy. And why? Because as Twee mentioned, there's a little bit of agitation in joy. There's just not 
happen to be agitation and equanimity. So it's a more peaceful state, right? I'm not knocking renunciation joy. It's great. And this is a little bit more settled. Then with within renunciation, equanimity itself, there's the kind I just talked about, the very powerful kind about renunciation of all that arises at the different senses. That's huge. Equanimity of formations is another way to put that. You may have heard that in some more, more classical commentarial texts. So that, in this discourse, he talks about the equanimity of the diversity, the many sense objects. And he says, by relying on equanimity regarding sublime states, you can let go even of the equanimity of all of these different sense contacts. And then, finally, by relying on non-identification, non-craving, non-conceit, non-constructing, atamayata, the poly, abandon even equanimity. And that, that is what opens the door to the unconditioned, the supramundane path, as Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it, Nibbana. That kind of clinging opens a practitioner up to the most beautiful of absences. So that's what I had to talk about today. It's a teaching that is pragmatic on one level and very much um, invites us to consider during practice how we relate to our emotions and what's helpful and what isn't in deepening practice and maturing practice. So we have a little bit of time for questions, comments, um, protests, if you have any. And um, this will be recorded. So if you don't want to be recorded, you can put it in the chat and I will respond um, by reading your question anonymously, or you can just raise your hand. I'll also be a little bit of time at the end or I'll turn the recording off and we can just talk. Yes, Kate. Um, could you just say a little bit more about the last bit of abandoning equanimity? You know, in that last that last stage that you just just outlined. Yes, I, I can't really imagine. Quite, I'm just a bit confused by that bit. Yeah, I don't I don't blame you. Equanimity is pretty beautiful. It's one of the crown jewels, so called, of of meditation practice, right? And it is very close to liberation. My understanding of what the Buddha is pointing to here is that even equanimity is a state. It is a constructed state by the mind. And that atamayata, literally non-fashioning, is the letting go of any constructing of any state at all. So it is, it's a place a lot of people um, might not intuitively move towards. And I don't think it's something that can be done by will necessarily, but at a certain point, even the holding on to the most sublime of states becomes a holding, a clinging, and it feels better to relax and release it. The joy and the 
um, piece of non-clinging becomes the predominant orientation. Is that helpful at all? That's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for the question. It's a great question. Anybody else? Stuart and then Twee. You're muted. I know you go. I'm a little bit puzzled to hear equanimity applied to specific objects or reactions to specific things. I'd always thought of it as much broader. And I then wonder when it's applied to something specific, it seems to me very close to some form of acceptance, Mm -hmm. like Kate's washing machine. Any comment on that? Yeah, of course. Um, So this is the only place I've heard that applied to specifics. And um, my understanding, um, which could well be imperfect, because like I said, they didn't say much about this form. The Buddha didn't say much about this form of equanimity in this discourse, is that um, it could be acceptance, but it's, um, I think, another way of looking at experience to ensure we're not deluding ourselves, right? It's, um, if I feel very equanimous on a quiet meditation retreat, how equanimous would I be if the next day I learn all of us have to go home because of COVID, right? Um, If the equanimity is attached to the mind state of quiet, peaceful place, then it is attached to a sense object, perhaps a gestalt of them, right? Whereas if it's true equanimity, it might be like, okay, going home, no problem, right? So your point about the equanimity and the acceptance being very close together, I think is a completely valid one. The commentaries um, state, and Bhikkhu Bodhi had one little quote in there, that this kind of equanimity is not... um, the what you know the true renunciation equanimity because it is attached to an object, just like flies are drawn to sugar, basically. So I don't find that a particularly appealing analogy, but it does get to the point that like it might feel like a grand state, and it still might be very much attached to something sensory as opposed to being this broader form. Is that helpful at all? Yeah, yeah, that is helpful. Thank you. Twee, were you just adjusting or were you reaching to make a comment? I couldn't tell. I can wait. I, I'm, you know, I'm not in a hurry. So anybody, you know, I, I can wait and, okay. and 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 talk with you after. Okay, sure. I, Anybody, anybody else that has an idea they'd like to share? Hi. Hi. Um, so I, I was struck by the, the sensual um, attachments, and especially when you mentioned the view. And I think one of my desires that I question whether trying to fulfill or, or let go of is living somewhere where there's more nature. And, um, and for me, it's, 
it's like it's almost like there's a settling when I'm in an environment like that, and everything's just easier to work with in my mind. And and yet I know it's it's a desire and it is based. So I'm not quite sure what to do with it. It's a big question for me in my life. That. I'm not sure what my question is. <laughs> I, I I feel like there is a good question in there actually, which is um, when are sense desires actually onward leading and um, and helpful to the practice? And it could be that um, knowing that your body and your psyche respond to nature in a certain way is a more conducive field of practice for you, right? So to kind of tease out for yourself where the wholesome motivations are and where the motivations that are strictly about, oh, I just want this because I want it. I want it because it's pretty. Um, for many people, living in nature is actually healthier. It promotes longevity. And that's a valid motivation too, so. Yeah, it's more important perhaps to have the inquiry with a sense of gentleness and kindness than an answer. Than a what? Than an answer. Ah, okay. Wrong, right? Yes. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Thank you, Patty. Anybody else? We can open it up to to more general questions, incorporating last week's theme as well, if you want. Okay. So thank you all for your practice. Lovely to be with you. Uh, I'm going to dedicate the merit and then turn off the mic, turn off the recording. And anyone who wants to stay for more informal conversation afterwards for a few minutes is welcome to stay. Okay. So um, may the benefits of our practice here together be cause and condition for greater peace, wisdom equanimity and freedom in our lives and in the lives we touch and in the lives they touch, so on, rippling outwards, providing benefit to all beings. May all beings be safe. May all beings be happy. May all beings know the highest joy of freedom. Thank you all for your practice. Great to be with you and We'll see you next month, those of you who come back in November. Thank you.
See you next month.